0: Hello, and welcome to The Mastering Show live Q&A session. Uh, This is an experiment. Um, John and I, uh, we're doing this to kind of celebrate, if you like, the fact that my Home Mastering Masterclass course is starting again this Friday. Um, And the idea of this Q&A is basically exactly like the Q&As that happen during the Masterclass course. So the course is an eight week online course where every week i master a different song using different software different techniques and strategies i show you what i'm doing and i explain why and also anybody who's on the course can email me ask questions and two or three times during the course we have a hangout just like this where people can uh, join in and ask me more questions and kind of make sure that they understand everything and get the information that they really want it's one of the things i enjoy most about running the course Uh, so if sounds like something you might be interested in, head on over to homemastering.com. You can sign up and as soon as um, we open the course, uh, you'll be notified about it. So joining me on tonight's live episode, as ever, is John Tidy. Hi, John. How are you doing? Hey, Ian. Hello, everyone.
1: Thanks for joining us.
0: And I think we've got plenty of questions. We should just crack straight on.
1: Question comes from Sigidor. How do you think the mastering engineer's job has evolved in the last 10 years and or since you started working as a mastering engineer? Changes in technology economics.
0: The thing that springs to mind for me about mastering changing over... So it's 20 years that I've been mastering, I'm, I'm slightly appalled. In fact, it's more than 20 years now. Um, and I was the main thing that I think has changed is that when I started out, nobody knew what mastering was. So the company that I used to work for uh, also offered CD brokering. So people would phone up and they'd say, Oh, I want a thousand CDs pressed. And we would say, Sure, no problem. Have you had the album mastered? And people would say, What's that? <laughs> um, and that has completely changed over those 20 years. You know, now it seems like everybody thinks they know at least what mastering is and expects it. Um, and that, that's, that's a complete reversal. In terms of the technology, I think the main move has been into the computer not just in terms of processing um but when i started out i was mastering from dat tapes and from cds to pneumatic video cartridges that would create the the production master that you'd send off to the plant you know these days the whole thing is in the in computer i mean if you'd have told me when i started mastering that one day people would be able to just send a burned cd to the plant that they spent you know 20 cents on I would have thought you were insane. I mean, when we didn't even have recordable CDs for the first few years I was working and when the first ones came in, the blanks cost 15 pounds (laughs) each, which is kind of incredible. And and that kind of, in terms of the economics as well, it's just, well, as a a guide, if you think I worked for 15 years at SRT and over that time, I'm not aware that they ever had a price increase. And that was because at every stage, the prices were falling. People were not prepared to pay what they had been prepared to pay. Um, So there was just this feeling that, there would people would rebel if if we put the prices up. Having said that, of course the, the the price of admission dropped as well because back in the day you needed hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of equipment just to produce a CD master, let alone to do the processing and to make it sound good and the tape machines and and all the other stuff that you need to to make uh to, to do a good job of mastering. So uh, yeah, I think it, in all of those ways it completely changed. Um, so what's was part two of the question, John?
1: I'll just jump in and say, when I started, um, I had Ozone and I would just use the presets and make it as loud as possible. And now I actually use meters and I choose my own settings in
0: Ozone. See, that's music to my ears. Um, <laughs> and I hope that other people, I mean, well, I know that other people are saying the same things because I've, I've had other people make the same comments, you know, and that's, uh, I think that's what it's all about. The first thing that I was taught as as a mastering engineer was about meters was about you know the difference between peak and rms level and and what i needed to be measuring and what the targets should be it's actually that's not strictly true the first thing i was taught was about digital clock uh because when everything was hardware it was really important to have a, a continuous line of sync through all of the gear um but yeah the next thing i was taught was metering so yeah that's great to hear
1: so Sigador's question continues. What changes or trends have you seen and remember come and go also in mixes, maybe since they do indeed affect how we work.
0: So the one that jumps to mind there um, is that again, back when I started the main thing that we did, I don't want to say the main thing, but a really important thing that we did for people was make mixes louder. the, the biggest difference between a mix that someone had recorded and mixed themselves and they submitted for mastering, and the stuff that was being done by the major labels and 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 the pros, was the dynamics processing, was the compression and the limiting, and just the understanding of balancing levels, balancing EQ, uh, consistent level over the course of an album, all of that stuff. Um, so, you know, we said completely happily to people oh yeah i'm going to make this louder for you and it's going to sound better and now of course we've flipped around to the exact opposite where a huge amount of what i get sent is already too loud and too crushed and too compressed and too processed and i'm asking people to submit more dynamic material um so it's just a kind of complete inversion of that whereas before people didn't even know that making it loud was something that they needed to do in order to get great results uh And now everybody thinks that's the only point of mastering and and all of the other stuff kind of gets lost by the wayside. So that's kind of a bit sadly ironic, I guess.
1: And final part of this question, where do you see it, the job, going in the next five or ten years, technology, economics, et cetera? I think we're already starting to see some changes with the um, artificial intelligence sort of things and automated mastering
0: Yeah, and I mean, I kind of got mixed. We've got a specific question about those coming up um, later, so maybe we we won't get too deeply into that now, but that's definitely um, a change. I mean, you know, the the big thing is that, well, people are starting to master their own material. You know, I mean, I say pretty much everywhere on my website, on the, the Home Mastering Course, that if you want to get the absolute best results from your music, I recommend you go to a pro completely understand and recognize that some people don't want to do that, some people are not able to do that. Um, and so the the idea of people mastering their own stuff is becoming, you know, again, back when I started out, that was just impossible. Um, so I think that's going to become more and more of a trend. I hope, you know, I've kind of watched over the course of my career the the studio business gradually decline. You know, more and more of the big name studios in London and in the UK are closing. I hope that that's reached a point now where the people who are still there can survive because they have great sounding rooms, they still have great equipment, they have great engineers. Um, You know, there was a point when there were so many studios, it was kind of ridiculous. Um, Now I guess it's a shame there are not enough perhaps or not as many as it would be nice to see because I do think there's something still to be said for a, a, a proper recording studio even though some of the best recordings I've ever heard have come out of people's bedrooms. So that trend is going to continue. Um, I'd be fascinated to see, you know, I mean, I've done a fair bit of surround sound over the years, not so much in recent years, but uh, especially maybe 10 years ago when we were doing lots of DVD authoring, we would do surround mixes of concerts and all kinds of stuff. Um, Now we have, you know, you have 7.1, you've got um, Dolby Atmos with however many, It's kind of almost unlimited number of loudspeakers you can have. And there's the whole 3D audio thing with binaural sound to kind of create a more realistic sound environment from stereo. Um,
1: And VR headsets and things like that. It'd be interesting to see if people are releasing music made for that.
0: Do you say they have already started or whether you think, whether people do?
1: I don't know which way the trend is going to go. I think there'll be a few releases designed for that platform but it'll be audio and video but i don't think the average person is going to be doing that in their home studio
0: no and i mean the whole 3d sound with the binaural is an interesting question because part of the idea of it is you just kind of capture this really pure signal with these microphones in in a dummy head and that as soon as you start to mess with that especially in terms of the phase it kind of it can all fall to pieces um, however the bbc have Last year, I noticed, we were doing experiments where they were broadcasting some of the the proms from the Royal Albert Hall. So that series of 30 30 nights of concerts throughout August, the last night of the proms, I guess probably everybody's heard of that. Um, Some of those were being broadcast in binaural, and they were not just using a single dummy head for that. They had some kind of major computer processing technology to be able to do that, to, to have multi mics and to be able to blend them together and to add extra effects and stuff. Some of those sounded stunning um so I guess that means that in theory you could also master that kind of material um I guess if you use phase linear eq you should be able to master it just anyway but well, things like compression and limiting I don't know how those play in surround sound still hasn't quite made it so far and i guess it's interesting to me to to think to find out whether in ten years time maybe that will be just standard where everything will be in 3d and but, but then it becomes you know when you talk about VR headsets and games, you know, we did an episode on games a while back, or sound for games. The the role of the mastering engineer is kind of not clear there because actually the the technology is generating the sound on the fly depending what the person using the system is doing. And the same with VR, you know, how do you master, what do you do with music when people can turn their heads and look around? In fact, I saw uh, Gorillaz streamed a gig recently in... 360 the 360 video that you can get on on youtube um which was amazing uh you couldn't control which camera you, would, you they they were still switching cameras but when you were kind of while your view was locked into a particular camera you could look around but the music didn't do anything you know it was just a static stereo mix on the one hand i can understand that on the other hand it kind of felt a bit like a shame so i mean i think there's potential for all kinds of incredibly creative and interesting stuff in those areas whether that will come to anything and we, we get our hands on it as mastering engineers. I don't know. That's an that's interesting question.
1: I'm not sure if musicians are going to want listeners to manipulate the mix and things like that as they listen to it.
0: No, and I mean, that's been possible for a while. Um, you know, various software. Some musicians are, are really into that, and, but lots of them aren't. I mean, I'm a bit of a control freak, so I, you know, the idea of somebody... I mean, you've got to get real, right? There's if if people kind of push the button that says surround sound on their amp when they're listening to stereo, they're going to transform the mixes and masters that we listen to anyway. And even if you choose to play it on a Bluetooth speaker that you put up in the corner of your room, you know that that's going to change the way that it sounds. We've got no real control, but even so, I kind of I agree. Kind of handing it over, lock, stock, and barrel to the listener kind of feels a bit alien to me um but again i mean maybe that will maybe that will change you know the the way that people interact has completely changed and you think about memes you know people putting kind of bits of art on the internet and other people taking them and modifying them all the rest of it maybe that will happen with music as well it's but maybe not there seems to be this kind of resistance to it in general you know music kind of seems to be uh sticking to its to a similar track despite It's almost like all of these possibilities are out there and and music kind of ignores it and carries on just being good tunes and great mixes, and I don't know, maybe that's a good thing. Maybe time for another question?
1: Yeah. So uh, we had some pre-picked, but let's jump into the ones that came in from the live chat. So the first one I've got is from Bob Ellis. Is there a bank of reference tracks available somewhere for mastering and mixing genres that you may not have in your own collection?
0: Hmm. Tricky. I don't know about a bank of reference tracks. Um I mean, one thing you can do, there's a couple of playlists. I've got a Spotify playlist of my kind of stuff uh that has a fair variety of material in it. And there's a, a Pinterest page as well where I post some of the stuff that isn't on Spotify. So that could be helpful, Bob. There are kind of libraries of music that's out there available to be mixed. I think short of of kind of picking an engineer who you like, like if there's somebody like me who has some kind of showreel out there, um, that would be one way to do it or to kind of compile yourself, you know, a playlist somewhere of somebody's work. Uh, You know, say if you're, I don't know, Chris Lord Algy or Bob Clearmountain or wherever it is, whoever it is, um, that could work. But no, I don't think there's um, a kind of a central... Hub? Do you know anything like that, John?
1: The only thing I can think of is to check like the iTunes charts and see what's popular in that style, or what are the most popular, you know, ten albums or whatever in that style. Um, Or there's probably other websites that chart that kind of stuff, and just kind of like build up a mental average of what those things sound like. If you're a professional providing mastering for someone else rather than mixing your own music, then probably have the opportunity to ask them, what do you want this to sound like? What are your references? Um, what are your influences? And, you know, what are, what are three albums that influence the making of this record? What, what can we do in the mastering to, you know, meet that expectation?
0: That's a good point. And uh, although, in my personal opinion, if you're going to be a mastering engineer, to some extent, those kind of opinions need to be built in. It's like, Quite often people send me reference tracks and I listen to it and, I, and it, you kind of, you take it on board, but take it with a pinch of salt. Because if I literally tried to make stuff sound like some of the references that I get sent, I just wouldn't be happy with the results. Usually I can do what I do and get enough of the flavor of the reference that they've sent in. You know, on the one hand, I don't, I've said before, I don't feel like I have a sound. It's not like I, people send stuff to me and I stamp the Ian Shepherd sound on it but you know there are things that are kind of consistent through all of the masters that I do and there are definitely kind of places that I won't go or or things that I just don't like it's like for example if somebody sends me something that's really kind of narrow in the stereo image I almost always try and broaden it out a little bit try and get some space in there somehow um, just because that's my personal taste and if if somebody doesn't like that then probably I'm not the right mastering engineer for them so Reference tracks are great for kind of calibrating your ears. we I don't know whether we'll get to it. We had another question from somebody asking, say, saying that they mix and master with their eyes a lot. Um, oh, it was Ben Axelson, I remember. Um, yeah, saying he, he mixed and mastered with his eyes a lot, and, and that's how do I avoid falling into that trap? And my kind of answer to that was going to be that in the early days, I didn't have that problem because the 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 most visual infant feedback I had was a um, – I actually had an auxiliary patch from the desk to an old-style graphic EQ. It was an eight-band graphic with an eight-band display. So literally, I was just, in terms of getting feedback on the EQ balance of the songs I was watching, I was just seeing eight bands. So that was kind of useful enough to kind of generally help me get the overall balance about right, but but useless enough to <laughs> that I didn't kind of come to rely on it. Whereas nowadays with all these plugins that give you all, you know, real-time FFT and spectrographs and all the rest of it, uh the temptation to rely on our eyes much more is much more of a problem i would say um so i think the the main thing i would suggest is i think all of that stuff is great for training our ears but don't go to it first listen react based on wherever you're at at the time then check and if the plugin or whatever it is tells you there's a huge resonance at 100 hertz you hadn't spotted well then you can experiment by Pulling that back with a bit of EQ and hopefully learn from the experience. And next time you might notice it. The danger is that if you look at the the graphics first, you're just responding to them. Um, it's kind of like the difference between using a sat nav and a map in a car. Uh, I don't know if anybody else has had this experience, but me personally, if I follow a sat nav, I get to where I want to go, but I have no idea how I got there. And if the sat nav died and I had to find my way back again, I'd be lost. Whereas w- I don't I actually don't have a proper sat nav in my car. I, what I tend to look, do is look on Google Maps beforehand, get an idea of the route, and then try and and follow the mental image in my head to get there. I sometimes get lost and I have to consult and put myself right. But it it helps me to have an idea in my head of where I'm going. And exactly the same thing applies to music. Um, so I think if you you know start off watching the uh, the graphics and the analyzers and all the rest of it to figure out to kind of calibrate your ears and Figure out what your monitoring is telling you and what the reference tracks actually sound like, how that kind of connects to what you hear in the real world. But then start just using your ears and checking against the other stuff. And I would say the same thing about reference tracks. Every so often somebody will send me 10 reference tracks for an album. Um, If they send me one, I'll usually listen to it. If you send me 10 reference tracks, I'm probably not going to listen to any of them. I will probably just do my thing and then I'll listen to the reference tracks and discover whether or not I'm way off the plot. Actually, okay, so there's a refinement to that strategy, which is that's a bit risky because especially if you're doing it remotely, you don't want to master an entire album and then find that you were completely out on a limb. So probably what I would do is master one song and then listen to the reference tracks and kind of work from there. But again, it's you have to take all this stuff with a pinch of salt and somehow try and integrate what the client is asking you for, what everybody else in the world is doing, what your taste says you should do. Um and come up with your own solution to the problem. that's, that's kind of what it's all about. Um, sounds quite complicated when I say it that way, but I think it's not that bad in practice. John, do you have anything that you do? You, do you mix with your eyes ever, or are you good at avoiding them?
1: Hmm. I trust my monitors pretty well. And it's really just like, if I see red on dynameter things like that, then I'll, you know, I'll pay attention <laughs> to what, good. what's going on. Good. I mean, it's, when you're working with plugins, it's very hard not to look at what you're doing. And, you know, and, and if you move the EQ past, like, 3 dB, you start to second-guess yourself at times. You know, it looks wrong, and, and you're you afraid that you're doing something destructive, but you just have to, you know, not fool yourself, actually pay attention, and lots of A-B testing and things like that. Yep, absolutely.
0: Cool. Uh, We had a question from Norberto. Have you got that one?
1: I'm finishing a mix slash mastering classical project. Harpsichord, solo, duet, trio, quartet, and orchestra all in one CD. Difficult for me not to use compression.
0: We talked a little bit about mastering classical in one of the other shows, Norberto, so I won't spend too long on it. But it depends what your goal is in terms of whether you want to use compression. Because I I guess what you're saying is when you have material that, that is that varied, you need to try and get some kind of consistency in there, and a compressor is the, the way that we automatically might reach to try and achieve that but i mean a lot of classical music is mastered without any dynamics processing at all um or at most a very clean digital limiter just to kind of catch the extreme peaks so but it depends on the material i mean uh you know there's there's kind of here in the UK, we have Radio 3, BBC Radio 3, which is pretty purist classical, um, or classic FM, which is, you know, kind of Il Devo and uh not the three tenors, but there's a Il Devo is a bunch of tenors, I think. Um kind of pop classical stuff. So they play the really popular tunes, uh, and a lot of the the kind of the modern classical stuff that's being produced. Uh, is Vanessa May the violinist, I, I forget whether. Quite a lot of that stuff is produced almost as though it's pop music. It's it's really loud and compressed and, and all the rest of it. So the question is where your what your clients want fits in that spectrum. If it's towards the classical end, I would try not to use compression. What I would use instead is, is uh, automation, manual gain rights. So, uh, you know, if you have a quiet section of a piece and then it suddenly comes in really loud... Um, use edits or automation changes to control the dynamics of those two sections like by turning the loud section down a bit and the quiet section up a bit rather than compression um because depending on the instrumentation i mean uh, again harpsichord actually harpsichord is an interesting one because it probably doesn't need a heck of a lot of compression because it basically has no expression uh you, you know you you hit the note and it it plucks the strings and and that's that's the sound you don't even you don't have the dynamics of say a piano um but quartet you know string quartet is obviously an incredibly dynamic thing again depending on the type of material it can be quite hard to use compression in a transparent way on classical material because it it, we just don't expect it um you know pop and rock has been compressed since the 50s certainly the 60s it's it's part of the way that we hear the music and the way that we expect it to sound same thing doesn't apply to classical so I understand the temptation but I would be I would try and not use compression if it's going to be a fairly purest classical uh project so hopefully that help that probably makes your life a lot bit more difficult <laughs> you, you don't have to take my advice i mean you know so, okay so the flip side is if you're using compression you can and you've got transparent settings especially okay so you could go for you know uh lower ratios 1.1 1.2 i've seen people recommend sometimes it's not strategy i use myself and much lower thresholds so that the compressor is active a lot more of the time but very gently so you just gently kind of squeeze the dynamic range rather than that kind of the the way that we tend to use it in pop music where you're you're clamping down pretty hard on the, la- the loud sections that could work i guess At the end of the day if you have a sound that you're happy with and the client is happy with doesn't matter whether it's compressed or not if it sounds good it is good but beware that people won't necessarily expect that kind of sound in fact i did a session i did a recording session years ago for a group whose name i'm not gonna be able to remember but the the thing was it was a harpsichord and and acoustic instruments kind of playing classical ish stuff but stuff that they'd written um and i did what I thought, I, well I loved the recording, a beautiful close mic harpsichord sound, and all. all of, I was really pleased with it. They said it sounded very good, but they ended up going off and recording it in a church because they wanted that sound of them playing live in a real acoustic, not the kind of highly produced thing that we gave them. Uh, they still paid because at the end of the day, that was their mistake, not mine. <laughs> um, you know, if you want a certain sound, you've got to choose whether you go to a church or a studio. That's the kind of similar question that you've got, Norberto, is with whether whether they want that musicians in a concert hall sound or something else, um, I think. We have a lot There's of There's a ton of comments here. I'm, uh, yeah. <laughs> this is great. We're going to have a huge library of questions to draw on. we're just not going to be answer all of them this time. I'll, I'll look through yeah. this. Yeah.
1: There are a lot of questions on LUFS and things like that. Do you want to talk about the loudness standards of the different platforms, or?
0: I actually don't want to talk about it. I want to point people to a blog post that I just did recently. In fact, let me get the exact URL. Um, I mean, okay, let's briefly say it is true that lots of streaming platforms have different uh, loudness levels that they are normalizing to, right? And people are asking, well, which one should I pick? Which one should I choose? Or do I have to do separate masters for every platform? That's kind of missing the point because they adjust the loudness for you. So what I would suggest instead is master with certain guidelines in mind and you will end up with a product that will work on all of those platforms. Some of them will turn it down more than others. That's okay. And the, well, what the blog post says that I will point you to in a second is that, my recommendation is the same as it's always been, which is uh, don't let the short-term loudness go above minus nine LUFS at the loudest points in a piece of music. And if you uh, have been listening regularly to the show, you'll probably be able to translate that into the kind of measurements that my dynameter plug makes. So I also recommend not letting the true peak go above minus one. That means that at the loudest moments, I'm saying that the Short-term loudness should be at minus 9, no, no higher than minus 9. If the peaks are at minus 1, that's a peak to short-term loudness ratio, a PSR, as measured by dynameter, of 8. So basically, don't let the PSR go below 8. In terms of LUFS, that means don't let the short-term loudness go above minus 9. Um, then balance everything else to sound good musically. Um, you know, if it's a full-on rock tune, it will probably be that loud for most of the duration of the song if it's something much more varied uh, in terms of the arrangement, then it will be quieter at some sections. Probably three or four dB or loudness units is typical for kind of verse and chorus, if you have a quieter verse and a full-on chorus, say. But yeah, do what sounds right, provided you've listened to the really early episodes of the show where I talked to you about setting a mastering level and getting your metering set up so that you know what you're, what you're doing uh now the interesting thing is when you do that when you balance everything by okay where are the loudest moments here's how loud i'm going to make them and everything else is going to fit in around that then when you measure the integrated loudness which is what all of the guidelines for these platforms are measured in which is the 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 loudness over the length of a song or over the length of an album you will find more often than not that you come up with numbers that are in the range of minus 11 minus 14 maybe minus 15 or minus 16 which is pretty much you know minus 14 is the is the that's where spotify and tidal are um, pandora and apple music are a couple of dbs lower uh, youtube is a db higher so you're going to end up with the kind of values you want but but you don't want to aim for them because okay flip it around the other way if you have Two songs in an album one is a quiet song and one is a loud song if you master both of them to minus 14 LUFS which is what some people are suggesting that's not going to work musically because the quiet song is going to be as loud as the loud song it'll work fine in terms of the loudness normalization on the streaming platform but you could master the quiet one at minus 14 and the louder one at minus 12 and the loudness normalization will make that adjustment for you anyway when people listen on you know spotify or wherever just because they do that to the music doesn't mean that we have to do that when we master the music and in fact you shouldn't do that because you're just going to tie yourself up in knots because it's not going to feel satisfying musically and that's why instead i recommend this no higher than minus nine at the loudest moments short-term loudness um but yeah there's a blog post um where i go into that in more detail um, which we will put in the show notes on masteringshow.com
1: You had that article recently on uh, the YouTube, the loudness stats. And I couldn't stop for like three days looking at every video, what the normalization level was, especially when the ads are really loud at the start of it. Sometimes the ads don't get normalized down.
0: Well, it's interesting. The ads thing is interesting because the, the, so for anybody who hasn't seen this blog post yet, we'll put a link to this in the show notes as well. Um, uh, a reader of the, the blog messaged me a while ago, a few weeks ago saying, hey, YouTube are displaying normalization values." So these days, if you right click on a YouTube video and choose stats for nerds, which I love, um, <laughs> one of the stats that it shows you is the normalization levels. It will show you the amount in dBs that your song is higher or lower than what YouTube um, are normalizing to. So so YouTube, it, the, YouTube doesn't use LUFS, um, but even so, their normalization level is about minus 13 LUFS. Um, so if you master your song at minus 10 LUFS, they will turn it down by three dB. So you'll see a reported value there. It'll say uh, loudness content, something like that, uh, plus three. Whereas if you master at minus 14, it will show... Loudness content minus one, and then it will show you the percentage amount that the uh, the replay volume is being changed by by YouTube to to achieve the normalization. And one of the interesting things when you start looking at that, as John says, is you can see that the ads are being normalized. There's lots of people. Whenever I talk about normalization on YouTube, everybody gets annoyed and says, "Well, the ads aren't being normalized. They are." The problem is that not all of them are being measured. I mean, YouTube's normalization system still seems to be flaky. Uh, Just for example, it seems like nothing in August got normalised. Since two weeks into September, this new statistic appeared. My guess is that they were tweaking the system somehow, and they kind of put the normalisation measurements on hold, Um, and probably retrospectively, all of those songs will get measured and will get normalised. But I think the same thing applies to the ads, and I don't know whether the ads slipped through the the, the, the net or whether there are just so many of them that don't get measured or how it works, but it's, it's a lot less consistent. Um, the whole thing is still a little bit messy, but it is happening. And, and now you can see the exact numbers if you want to, but as John says, it's, it's a real time suck.
1: Yeah. I, I feel like, well, not just in music that's on, on YouTube, like every show, every, everything you watch and every ad should have that's that stat there. And if it's at 100%, that means it's not normalized at all. And if it's uh, like 53 or something like that, then it's uh, that means that it's turned down by half. <laughs> I, I don't remember. I'd have to look at it to, to know.
0: 50% is a 6 dB reduction, right? Because it's yeah. basically using the the dBs translating to power kind of equation.
1: That means that it was uploaded too loud and it's been turned down by six.
0: As far as YouTube are concerned, yeah.
1: Yeah, and, and their reference level is minus 14 LUFS?
0: It's not exact because they're not using LUFS, but it's minus 13-ish. Okay. I mean, I hope that all of them are going to start using LUFS in future. Tidal uses LUFS. That means it'll be predictable. People will know what to expect when they upload something. Um, shooting for targets then will make more sense. The, I mean, the other thing that's happened recently is Spotify reducing their level. So the, Spotify used to be roughly minus 11. LUFS and they've reduced that by 3 dB so they're down now at minus 14 as well the great thing about that is that most music pop and rock music you know that we work on most of the time that's plenty of uh headroom in terms of the the difference between the loudness and the peak um even some kind of absolute classic albums um probably only uh, are probably master like kind of minus 12 LUFS Um, They've still got plenty of dynamics in there. So I think that's what I'm saying. Don't feel... On the one hand, mastering the entire album at minus eight makes no sense because minus eight is too loud and it will get turned down and it will just sound worse than it would have done if you'd given it more space. On the other hand, deliberately trying to master at minus 14 because that's what YouTube will eventually, or Tidal will eventually make it, uh, that doesn't make any sense either. If it doesn't sound right, for the material work you know I mean if, if we're working in pop and rock and kind of quite dynamically controlled genres i've always said loudness is about finding the sweet spot and that means not too loud but also not too quiet um you know back in the day when I first started mastering as I mentioned earlier in the in this um q a i w- we were routinely making things louder and we were telling people and it was true that that process will make them sound better the the process of saying okay i'm going to move this song from minus 18 where it was mixed up to minus 12, say, where I'm gonna master it, you have to use a certain amount of dynamic processing to achieve that. And when you do, you will improve the chances of that translating to the widest number of systems. You will have to balance the EQ. You'll have to make all kinds of decisions. So a kind of it's not sounding better because it's louder, but a byproduct of the process of making it louder is that you end up making it sound it better in order to get it there. Um, And it wouldn't necessarily sound right if you took a really loud song and only went for it at minus 14. I mean, actually, you know, this is all a matter of taste Um, and it all depends how much limiting you're using. There's lots of mastering engineers out there who would say that even minus 14 is too loud. So for me personally, over the years, most of my stuff is kind of in that minus 12 to minus 14 range. Um, I'm very comfortable with the way that it sounds having said that uh, over recent years and especially since using dynameter and perception my plugins i've found that i've been edging my levels back um and becoming more conservative so maybe in five or ten years time we're going to look back on this and, and even the kind of minus 12 or minus 14 will feel too loud uh you know that's another interesting question going back to Sigurdor's uh point about you know the, the future of mastering you know what's going to happen to loudness and, I suspect we're going to move slowly towards more and more dynamic material. Um, but yeah, right now, don't get, don't get tied up in these. I, I guess that's ironic because I've been posting so many blog posts on them and doing so much research into them because people are so interested in them. But use these things as information. Don't use them as recipes for the way that you master your music. You know, it's, you need to know about this stuff, um, but then you make musical decisions with that knowledge kind of to back you up.
1: Let's go on to another question. Question from Chris. Do we have an opinion on absolute polarity? So if you flip phase on both channels, do you hear a difference?
0: So I, it's been years since I did any listening on this and I did do some listening a long time ago and I didn't have ABX testing materials. So I did my classic uh, three-fingered mouse trick where you randomly click the mouse button. you have to use. Three, or I have to use three fingers. I found that I could subconsciously keep track of how often I had clicked it if I used two fingers. Three fingers was enough to not know what I was clicking. I wasn't looking at the screen, so I couldn't tell what I was listening to. And I, I think I scored something like 80% of the time I could figure it out, but it's a pretty subtle thing. There are some kind of obscure test tones where um, the absolute... So absolute phase, absolute polarity, Right. When, when the, the voltage in the wire goes up, does the speaker push or pull back? Places where you see that in real musical situations are if you look at brass instruments. If you've got a brass instrument with a, a mic towards the bell, you, the waveform spends more time in the positive side. It's not equally balanced, positive and negative, um, in the waveform shape. It's, it's kind of above the line more often than it is below the line. Um, which is to do with the harmonic structure of of what comes out of the instrument. Um, The question is whether that matters when it gets played out of speakers. And so on the one hand, I would say, yes, I think I was able to hear it when I really put myself under the microscope. On the other hand, I discovered after several years mastering with a piece of hardware that will remain nameless, that it was flipping the absolute phase for me. And I had never realized. Um, And a client pointed it out and we discovered there was a bug in the software. Um, and nobody up to that point had complained. So I think it's, it's one of those last few percent kind of things. And even if you saw a waveform, you know, let's say something started with a solo trumpet and the waveform looked upside down to you where it was kind of more below the line than above it, I guess I would consider flipping the absolute phase in that case. But the question then would be, is it just that instrument or is it the whole mix where the polarity has been inverted? Um, And I I think, yeah, I need to clear up. We're not talking about just one channel. If you invert the polarity on one channel, it's going to sound very odd on almost any material. This is a different. You have both channels where the polarity is flipped. So it's just the waveform is going up when it should have been going down or down when it should have been going up. So I think, yes, it is audible, particularly for some instruments and some particular types of sound. You know, I guess electronic sounds could be another candidate where you might get quite unnatural waveforms that might be more audible. but I think mainly we have to rely on people to get it right in the mix because what's much more common for me is to find something that's wrong. Like You might find that the kick you know, pushes out, <laughs> the waveform goes up when the transient hits, and the snare is the other way around because they had a cable wired backwards or the, or the polarity was flipped and they didn't realise um, that kind of thing happens quite a bit. And of course, there's nothing you can do about that at the mastering stage. So then it's just a question of, of warning the client and seeing whether they want to fix it in the mix. Um, have you ever tested this, John? Do you, have you, can you hear it?
1: I feel like I have tested it with like, a, like an 808 kick drum. I'll just polarity invert as it's looping. And I, I think it's something you can trick yourself into hearing easily, but it probably, it might not actually make any difference. On its own, you're not likely to hear a problem. But when it's one thing out of phase with something else, polarity inverted with something else that um, is processing in parallel with it, things like that, then it makes a difference. Yeah, I
0: yeah, I think I'd probably go along with that.
1: Question from William. Curious as to what you think about the AI advances we're seeing in the new 8 and 2 from Isotope and Newfangled Audio's Elevation. I haven't tried these yet. They're interesting, but... And I'm pretty happy with the tools that I have at the moment as well.
0: Yeah, I've, um, I haven't tried them either. Um, I've watched the videos for Neutron, which I think is the N2 in the, uh, the isotope 08 N2, and I thought it was a really cool idea. I've seen other people talking about them saying that actually it made them slower rather than faster, um, and I wonder whether it would be most helpful as a learning tool um, you know, because the idea of like neutron is you you give it two tracks and it will tell you which e q ranges might be fighting on those two tracks um and you can experiment with cutting one to allow space uh, cutting the e q on one to allow space for something else um I think that's a really cool idea uh it's the kind of thing that I do instinctively uh and part of me wonders whether if there are people who need it almost like we were saying about mixing with your eyes earlier on i'd be concerned that you'd end up relying on those plugins and not figuring the skills so i think i, I think anybody using those should very much approach it as a, okay i'm going to use this to learn it's a kind of it's a suggestion or not for ideas and then i'm going to try like if there's another two tracks in the mix rather than just immediately firing up neutron i'm gonna uh try and figure out what's going on myself and then maybe compare it with the suggestion that Neutron makes, that kind of stuff. Um, I think the idea of AI to help people get results, better results in general, is really interesting and really exciting. And I mean, I am very intrigued by all of the automated mastering systems. Uh, You know, I've played with a few of them, and so far I haven't found one that I can wholeheartedly recommend, but it's really early days. And I do feel like, some of what we do as mastering engineers can be approached in that kind of artificial intelligence way but at the end of the day i feel like mastering is all about a human listening to a song it's you know i think all of these things to me remind me of you know the auto contrast function in photoshop uh Where you just, you know, rather than opening up the levels tool and adjusting all of the things yourself and fine tuning it to get the perfect example, you just press press a button and it gives you something that's a heck of a lot better than it was. It may or may not be the best that photo will ever look, but you kind of don't care because you just want it fixed quickly. That's what I feel about all of these automated mastering things. I feel like that's all they ever can be because it's just a machine making those decisions based on rules rather than a human making those decisions based on emotions. It's kind of like all of that automated, all of the loudness stuff we were talking about. You know, the machine's rule might be, oh, it's a kind of a rocky track. I'm going to make it this loudness. That might be right eight out of ten times. But the other two times, maybe there's something about, you know, the, the artist has deliberately chosen a kind of thin and trashy sound and they don't want it to sound as big as the other one so they don't want the big bass boost in the eq or whatever or and those are the kind of things that we make we we have empathy as humans uh about the artistic decisions people have made in the recording and the mixing, and a machine's never going to have that so i'm kind of sim I'm kind of torn on these things because I'm simultaneous you know the the scientific bit of me is really interested in how how good a solution can you get to these problems and what clever ways can you come up with to help people get better results and then you know the part of me that just really loves doing the job and making those decisions are going well I'm going to make this one a little bit louder just because it feels right to me or I'm actually going not going to make that one quite as loud or whatever it is you know this one I'm going to keep I, I hear that it's so just today I was doing um a demonstration video for YouTube channel of balancing three songs just using EQ and limiting one of the so one of the songs was a house track one of them was a kind of sort of uh, slightly electronica dubby kind of big soft warm thing (laughs) and one of them was basically kind of punky um and i deliberately chose not to boost the bass as much on you know i mean punk is guitars bass and drums and shouty vocals basically or it was in this case um So based on that instrumentation, I might have said, okay, well, I want to boost the bass like this to get all this weight in the kick drum and big, rich bottom end in the bass guitar. And I decided not to because it wasn't right musically. It was intended to be kind of aggressive and thrashy and and a bit thin. Um, I guess machines could get to the point where they could do that kind of stuff, but I don't think they're there yet. And I think there's always going to be exceptions to the rule. So. Yeah, I find a, I find all this stuff fascinating and interesting, but I have reservations. And in fact, the video that I was just talking about, where I compare or I mastered three songs just using EQ and limiting, is going to be on Robert Maze's YouTube channel soon. His website is musicianonamission.com. I think that's dot com. Uh, we'll put it in the show notes for anybody who's interested. So if you want to see. That video, head over there and take a look. And I'm doing that video for him because he asked me to, and I'm a nice fellow, but also to help promote the Home Mastering Masterclass that I mentioned briefly at the beginning of this uh, live QA. As I mentioned, then it's opening up again on Friday. If you sign up during the first week uh, before the course officially starts, you get an introductory discount, which is roughly 30%, depending on which option you go for the home master masterclass is probably the most popular thing that i do i think it's probably the thing that i'm proudest of it's not as structured as home mastering eq for example but it covers a huge amount of range so every week i master a different song by a different artist I, there's an interview with each artist about the mastering process um, you basically get a fly on the wall view of me mastering those songs um, and it's structured in the extent that you know the first song is pretty straightforward and then as we move through the course there are more and more tricky examples and i get into things like stereo image uh, parallel compression and sort of the more unusual strategies that i might use in mastering there's been extra content added there are some hidden bonus uh features these days uh since the first time that i ran the course over a thousand people have taken it i get great feedback i mean we do q and a's like this as part of the course it's always great to connect with people find out what their problems uh they what, which problems they're having with their mastering you know we talk about how to deal with the fact that you probably don't have a mastering studio how to deal with the fact you might be mastering in the same space that you're mixing in how to use reference tracks something we touched on in this call how loud your monitoring should be for mastering and why that's really important um we talk about Guidelines for loudness, EQ, compression, all of these different topics. Um, Basically, it's me offering as much as I can about how I do what I do to try and help you get better results. Whatever questions you might have, I will do my best to answer them as best that I can. So, if that sounds like something you might be interested in, please head over to homemastering.com. If the course is open, you can sign up straight away. If not, you can just drop your email into the box and you will be notified as soon as it opens up again uh john did the mastering course years ago now um and told me he liked it i think it was the first round the first you're an early adopter
1: the first round of the
0: class yeah cool that was great good i'm I'm glad you liked it you should probably do it again there's been some more stuff added since then i think i should (laughs) oh that's something else that i should have uh, mentioned there's also but if you sign up to the course you get membership of a private facebook uh group where there's now over 500 members. It's a fantastic community. Uh, you know, everybody who's there has done the course. There are some great people there, like John, uh, like Ian Stewart, who some of you will know from the podcast, like Segador, who asked the first question this evening. Uh, it's a really supportive, friendly atmosphere there. People kind of share examples of what they've done and get feedback and ask for help with stuff. Um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm really uh, proud of the course, I think. Um, and if you want to know more about mastering your own music or just find out more about mastering in general it's a great resource so please do head over and check it out homemastering.com if you're interested that's enough sales pitch i think um thanks to everybody who sent questions this evening i always say on the course great questions make for a great q a and now we've got about 15 or 20 more for future q a so thank you for that john thank you for helping me out with managing the questions and for mixing and editing the show as always
1: absolutely it was fun
0: yeah it was it was good we should i think we should do it again sometime um i have no idea how many people actually tuned in live but uh we will edit this up and package it up as a normal podcast episode that will be out sometime in the next week thanks as always to kaylee law for uh, allowing us to use his music for the show please if you like the podcast if you hadn't kind of come across the podcast before and you're just listening to this for the first time there's a ton of stuff in the archives please head to themasteringshow.com look at some of the uh, older episodes the first seven episodes are a kind of starter course if you like taking you through the whole mastering process pretty structured set of episodes there Um, and if you like the show please head over to iTunes and give us a rating and a review to help other people find it too thanks for listening Broadcast has been successfully terminated.